Uh, it is time for our weekly update. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays here at uh, on NSN with the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Appreciate that very much. Tonight, as we've been pointing out, is the 25th yard site of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Uh, I, we know because of your public statements and your public speeches about him that you are a great admirer and uh, I certainly enjoyed whatever time you were able to spend with him during his lifetime. Uh, any thoughts as we now commemorate a quarter of a century since his passing and have witnessed, although some may have predicted otherwise, have witnessed an incredible growth in the Chabad Lubavitch movement over that time? Well, first of all, I think that uh, everybody acknowledges, and there are articles virtually daily, which point out that the, of the growth of Chabad since the Rebbe's passing, uh, which was due to the influence and his his foresight, that he established a foundation that didn't crumble when such a revered and, and uh, central figure uh, passes, that the uh, movement has continued to grow, and I think the significance both of his words and his actions have only been magnified uh, over the years. And the the, um, appreciation for some of his views, some of which may have been controversial at the time, but his uh, strong stance on certain issues, I think, have been uh, justified by by history. Yeah, no question about that. Now, he... (laughs) I don't know if this is fair. You'll tell me if it's a fair statement. Uh, can we say that he was the only Hasidic leader to be outspoken about the um, uh, about the conditions of the land of Israel, meaning that uh, he felt that we had to be extremely vigilant when it came to uh, the subject of giving away land and expressed how, how much he was frankly against it? W- wouldn't he have been the only Hasidic leader to really take a public position like that? Um, I, I really don't know if any others did. I actually had the opportunity to discuss it with him, and to uh, and his views were were very strong on on the subject, as you point out. And he saw the dangers of, uh, and also saw it in halachic terms about whether you can give up uh, parts of the land of Israel. Um, but it was only one of a couple of issues where he took that kind of a strong stand, and often was at least alone in, in the public posture. Uh, I can't say that nobody else has ever said anything on it because I don't don't know if that's correct. Understood. Also, one last point before we move on to the news of the day and of the week. Um, And this is sort of on the topic that we uh, spoke about the early part of last week's conversation. Uh, We played this morning a whole bunch of actualities, different things that he said about different topics and, you know, parts of conversations he had with leaders. One of them was um, the conversation he had with Menachem Begin as uh, Prime Minister Begin was on his way to Camp David in 1977, and um, I, I think based on what we heard this morning, his public statements, and knowing what he felt privately, uh, it, it would be a good example to follow, to express publicly in a proper fashion, um, knowing that the whole world is listening, one's opinion, and you know, and 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 be very careful with their words, and at the same time, you have a right in, in private, certainly. Uh, to express your fear, concern, and uh, and in some cases, 
anger with certain decisions that have been made. And I think based on what we said last week, that's a really good example to follow. It certainly is a good example, a good principle at all times. I do think that the Rebbe, though, said privately what he said, publicly what he felt privately, maybe in more measured terms than uh, at times, but he was also uh, tolerant in, and in listening to other views. You know, we differed on the issue of Soviet jury, the demonstrations, uh, but the Rebbe had the right to differ because he did. He was there in all those dark years, his shluchim, and the representatives of Chabad who worked throughout, and even before the Rebbe became Rebbe, the, their activities, uh, I mean, they kept Yiddishkeit alive there. And people risking their lives all the time to day in and day out to perpetuate uh, Jewish life under the uh, evil Stalin and, and the entire communist regime. Uh, and despite the fact that we uh, differed on it when it came to freeing Herman Braunhofer and other things, uh, he came to an understanding uh, at least to, to see what, what motivated and, and why we did what we did. Um, and you didn't see public condemnations of it. Right, 100%. All right, excellent. I thank you for that. Um, uh, could you explain to those who are not as familiar, and I think really uh, most people living outside of Israel are very unfamiliar uh, with the with the uh, status, the role, the part that Ethiopian jury plays in the state of Israel. Uh, frightening scenes in terms of the protests this week. We, we the episode that uh, sparked the protests. Uh, obviously, we understand why there would be. Um, a, some type of strong reaction, but this was uh, a very strong reaction. Could you tell us about this week's episodes in Israel and at the same time give us a little bit of insight in terms of how the Ethiopian Jewish society in Israel incorporates into the into the whole society? Oh, this is a subject for shows, not just a show, but the, the history, of course, is that, that Israel in Operation Solomon, Operation Moses, but uh, along work to rescue the, the Jews, the remnant of the, the Jewish community in uh, Palashmura, as they were called, but that is really an, uh, an alienating term, because uh, it was a derogatory term that they, they were called, um, but, they, they are, but Ethiopian Jews came um, literally from the Middle Ages, in most cases, into the state of Israel, and have made a remarkable adjustment overall, um, and but it's it's not universal. We see how many of them have emerged now as key officers in the army. How many are um, pursuing higher degrees of education and are the are member a member of Knesset, and um, uh, certainly that the story is is a remarkable one, and we all cheered when they by the remarkable rescue stories, and anybody who doesn't know should go and read the books about it, about how Israeli planes went to Sudan, how um, actually uh, I negotiated with the president and the vice president at the time. Um, I don't want to go into that now, but we, American jury, Israel, all worked together, world jury, with pressure on the Ethiopian government, and then it turned out that there was a 48-hour window during their civil war when we could get people out. And Senator Boschwitz, at my request, went to Ethiopia, negotiated, and literally in days we had the, the movement of, of Jews beginning. 
and the um, so the story is a really incredible one in and of itself. Of course, you know there, there is a lot of frustration in the community because they they still many of them still live in in the, on the edge of society and poverty, and the frustrations that were visible clearly visible this week on the television reports, newspaper reports. Uh, uh, I think a that's not an appropriate response, and the family of the victim, a young man, was shot by police, and that triggered this uh, explosion. But obviously, it was there's a lot of pent up feeling. And I think that there were a lot of outsiders who came in and uh, exploited the situation and exacerbated it. The family appealed for for an end to the demonstrations, and they said that uh, they want to finish the shiva, and after the shiva they'll think about what would be an appropriate action. But at least they're trying to, you know, to cool off this immediate uh, response, which saw yesterday, I think, 100 people, more than 100 people arrested, and more than 100 policemen have been hurt in one way or another over the week of demonstrations. Uh, that's not an acceptable uh, fact. And the, um, so the tensions have increased uh, and played out in isolated areas, but nonetheless, I think it's captured the, the headlines and the sustained um, and intense nature of these demonstrations. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they hope will bring more attention to the needs of the Ethiopian Jewish community. Um, the government of Israel did provide them with uh, assistance and stuff when they came, but I think it, it needs a sustained effort. Um, so you, as you know, one of the few people I think in the diaspora who uh, understands what's happening there in terms of the relationship with the community and Israeli society, were you surprised by this? I mean, this was a pretty strong reaction. Did it... it are conditions so bad and are things so difficult for the community that you that that you are not shocked by how strong this reaction was? I am shocked by the intensity of the reaction. And again, I think we have to know, as we've seen here and elsewhere, and if you looked at some of the faces of those involved in the riots, they were not. They were people who came from outside who said that they were coming to support the, the Ethiopians and their demands. But I don't know the degree to which they, this is politically motivated or um, exploitative of the situation, a real situation, and hopefully it will get real attention. And the prime minister has spoken about it, um, but they, it needs an allocation of resources. Um, but we have to really know who and uh, was behind it. Remember, it's a hot summer, it's uh, when which leads people to be out in the streets and more people come. And, but uh, burning cars and you know riding in the way that they did is is never an advisable approach. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, and politically, as you said, they are getting more and more involved to the point uh, that they have members of Knesset, and uh, uh, I, I would assume that uh, you know government officials, because of the actions this week, are paying a lot more attention to it. I wonder if it could, because I would assume such a large percentage of their community are now voter eligible at this point, right? It's so many years and decades mm -hmm. later. Uh, I would assume that uh, in some ways this could become an issue on this upcoming election, right? It certainly could. I think it, it and that's why I talked about the exploitation by those uh, who are not necessarily just looking for their own partisan gain, but to uh, go against the prime minister and to, to you know, engage in this kind of activities to for the for other for purposes other than benefiting the uh, Ethiopian Jews, uh, but certainly it could become an issue, and it is a voting block. And there are 
tens and tens of thousands of uh, Ethiopian Jewish voters. Could you tell me about Pilgrimage Road in the city of David and what happened on Sunday? If we have a week, I can. <laughs> the Pilgrimage Road, which is something that I saw from in, in every stage from the time of discovery and even before the discovery of the road, but when they found the steps of the Meshiloch, the Shiloh Pool, and my grandchildren actually dug one of the steps uh, with little uh, picks and hammers and stuff to, as they were discovering this incredible place that is so far beyond the simple description of its significance, of the nature of the find the history that went into it, where they found another road that they thought was the road and then discovered this underneath it that goes under the old city wall. And when you end up, and the first time I did it, I had to crawl through it, not something... Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not good in claustrophobic situations, but I had no choice because they made me do it, and they told me to stick my hand through this dark, uh, rather moist uh, hole that had been dug. And they asked me, "What you know what you're touching? And I said, no. And he said, that's the bottom of the hotel. Mm-hmm. And you go all the way through, and what they found there, including the places where the Romans broke through uh, from the road to the drainage ditch underneath where thousands of Jews had hit, were, were hidden, perhaps 2,000 or more, and the Romans went in and killed them. They were perhaps the last remnant of the Jews after the destruction of the temple who survived. The Romans had killed many, some say as much as a million, others say it's less, but a huge number of Jews were killed as the Romans sacked the Jerusalem and destroyed the, the temple. Uh, and the Jews fled, and, some, and they lived in this um, ditch, some say for days, maybe more, uh, and it was they, they would escape through it, uh, through the uh, Shiloh pool, but uh, somebody, um, I, I think that there was a collapse or something where they discovered them, and the Roman soldiers went in, and in fact, they found a Roman soldier's sword is still in the scabbard wow. in, in the tunnels. Uh, they found uh, a, a date palm, that um, is is flat on the ground, clearly, and uh, uh, one of the things that had been destroyed. But it was a, a male date palm, which doesn't give uh, fruit because it was meant for for shade for people. And they found so many amazing things, which uh, likes of which equivalents you, you cannot find anywhere. And that this is the road that, two, according to Josephus, 2.7 million Jews walked on on Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot as they were going, as they were Ola Regal, and that the you you walk today the same course and many things they found, you know, coins and other places with burnt uh, ashes still from the Churban bias from the destruction of the temple in the period and the fire that uh, engulfed the city, and the. Um, um, and they have been digging this uh, quietly for an extended period. This is uh, years in, in the making, and their official opening took place, and it's now open to the public. Uh, last week, the um, you know this is this is not doing it justice because there's so much about this little postage stamp area in the city of David, and maybe the original city of uh, of David as we know. Uh, they're still looking to see if the place identified as a potential uh, site of as the potential site of the um, the the, um, the King David's actual house and, and uh, residence. 
Um, and it fits all the descriptions. And when you talk about going up to Jerusalem, well, because you go down from the valley all the way up um, the hill and the road goes straight up under the wall and you end up, you know, where the Davidson Center is and the right in front of the wall. And you see the steps that were once there, the little remnant of Robinson's Arch right there. So the Jews walked up and then went up the steps into the temple after having purified themselves at the beginning of the journey in the Meshiloh, in the Shiloh pool. The whole thing is just amazing, absolutely incredible. And for those who want to deny <laughs> deny history to the Jewish people in that area, uh, this certainly helps the argument, doesn't it? And and the Palestinians have been making a point that this is a fake tunnel, and uh, you know the, the tunnels under in in from Gaza or from Hezbollah that didn't disturb anybody. Now, when uh, you find this, and and the the whole story of how a, a, a sewage pipe busting. Uh, and the workers and in Jerusalem, when, especially in this area, when you do repairs underground, you have to have an archaeologist with you first. That that's how they found this, the long and this, the stairs and everything that that uh, followed since. But to see the Palestinians denying it and saying this is a fake uh, enterprise, uh, uh, again in this continuing attempt to deny the Jewish association, the Jewish presence, and by the way. Christianity's beliefs as well being uh, denied by this. Uh, It's really quite remarkable. Unbelievable. That's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. And that is open to the public. Now people can go and actually tour that area, right? Absolutely, you can go and the whole year, David, the whole city of David excavations. There's so much to see. Allow enough time so you can you can properly um, experience it, and it's something you have to take your kids. There's a 3D movie. There are other things there, um, and uh, learn the real history of how just a couple individuals, one in particular, and and joined by another for all these decades, has devoted their lives to this. And has this, had the support of individuals around the world who who understood the significance of reestablishing in irrefutable ways our ties, our history, which the world tries to deny us. And I know I end up saying this to you every week, but you know, seventy years later, it's just the whole thing is unbelievable. I, I know I say it every week about something, uh, and you should say it every day. It, it is it, all unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. The election, anything new? Is it now definite? The election is on. Will it still be in September and mid-September? Uh, does it look like the parties that are uh, uh, that we've gotten used to over the last couple of months are going to be the ones who are running in September? It, yes, to all of the above. Uh, there may be different. There are going to be different faces. You know, Labor just elected um, Amir Peretz, or re-elected, I should say, because he was the head of the party and was a defense minister in a previous government um, as the head of the Labor Party. It was a little bit of a surprise. People thought it would be perhaps somebody new after the experience with Avi Gabay. Um, and the uh, right parties are still fighting over the leadership issues. Uh, Likud will obviously remain, but nobody knows what will happen within. Now that Barack is creating his own party, uh, right now it doesn't even show them breaking the threshold of 3.5%. But, you know, many of them can be spoilers. I'm trying to think what I saw this week that really helped Netanyahu. Um, I, don't know if it, I don't think there was a special thing that helped Netanyahu in the polls. I think there simply was a poll that had him 
with a with a significant quotation marks around that because we know how close it is in Israel. Significantly, did you see that that the latest poll had him up? Yes, but but he's not he's not breaking the sixty one votes, right. um, and to have him back exactly where they were, um, with the expenditure of so much money. Um, you know, the election's going to be September 17th. Now the, the Knesset lead, uh, speaker, Juliano Stein, tried to f- found some legal loophole, which he thought he would cancel it. The party said no. Blue and white rejected it, and uh, the, the election is going ahead. All right. We have that to look forward to. Uh, also, we sh- <laughs> So to speak. Yeah, I guess. Also, we should point out that for the first time ever, uh, the 4th of July celebration in Israel was in Jerusalem. That is true, and a very joyous celebration in the, in the main convention center, uh, celebrating July 4th. All right. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens when the next president takes office in the U.S. and what they will or will not do regarding Jerusalem, etc., but we have time for that. All it's right. Uh, the same one. Well, yeah, but I'm saying even after that, you know, oh. even after a second term. All right, um, Israel was accused of striking Syria on Sunday. Have they admitted it, and why'd they do it? They did it for the same reasons that uh, they have been doing it on a regular basis. The important thing is that the S-300 system that Russia provided them is not activated. They were using, the Syrians were firing old S-200 rockets, one of which landed in uh, Cyprus. Uh, so <laughs> it tells you some of the Boy. precision with which they work. But yeah. Israel hit particular locations believed to be associated with um, advanced equipment. Uh, they hit military depots of the IRGC in the Daria area. The people cited the rockets that were seen flying uh, into the area. They um, there, there were reports that a number of people were killed or injured. Uh, the you know obviously they don't confirm the specific details of each. Um, of each strike, but these were, it looks like, uh, four uh, strikes. The United States, by the way, hit an, uh, also a site uh, nearby. The, the people did say that the firing took place from Lebanese airspace, and uh, it's, again, Israel's red line that they can't allow the, you know, the IRGC, the Iran Revolutionary Guard, or other Iranian front groups um, this was a, one of the sites was a research center where, um, which I think they've hit before, and another one near homes, because they work not only on uh, the weaponry, but they also work on weapons of mass destruction. You know what's interesting, and uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, um, the, the hesitation that Israel used to have uh, to undertake these type of strikes and on top of that, the hesitation Israel used to have to admit to undertaking these type of strikes. Am I under the wrong impression, or is there a completely different attitude now in Jerusalem toward these things than there used to be? Well, the taboo was broken by the prime minister. Some people accused him of doing it for political reasons, other reasons, but most of all, it's not a secret to, to the Iranians. I mean, they, they see the planes. They have a pretty good idea of where they're coming from. They know it's not the Lebanese aircraft that are, are fi- uh flying these missions or launching the the rockets. And, you know, the Iranians are committed to supposed to be, uh, I think, 80 kilometers away from the border, and that has not been 
uh, allowed. And at the same time, the Iranians are now blatantly announcing that they're going past the 300 kilogram of enriched uranium, uh, saying that it's a policy. Then they deny it, but then they admit that they are beyond it, and saying that when the Europeans are in compliance, then they will be, not the United States, by the way, and there will be new sanctions against uh, Zarif, the foreign minister, and others coming this week. Um, and they're, they're um, c- uh, clearly demanding that the Iranians create the INSTEC system, which is up and running, but nobody's using it. Um, and, and Mugherini of uh, the EU you know, said that it's operational. We had our first transaction. The Iranians are saying nobody's transacting anything on it, and it because nobody will make the choice of Iran over the United States, or even the EU over the United States, and the sanctions therefore are intimidating European companies from uh, doing business uh, uh, directly with Iran. Iran has become, uh, while we're at it, just much more aggressive in both their statements uh, and the challenge to, to the United States. Uh, Russia said that they would sell them the S-400, but they haven't been requested, um, and the talks in Vienna over the JCPOA did not seem to make much uh, much progress. So the Iranians are now putting the screws on the Europeans, blaming them for not coming up with uh, alternatives. And you know they're they're portraying it as evil versus good, a 40-year war between the United States and Iran. Uh, Macron met with the with the Trump over it this, and, and talked about um, the economic sanctions. Um, the United States has been strong on it, even though we didn't bomb, uh, and it doesn't seem that I think many people think it was the right decision to turn the planes back. But the the fact is that the Iranians today mock the Europeans and uh, and challenge them, knowing that the United States is going to be resolute. And the United White House has said they want zero enrichment. The um, um, and we see the braggadocia, but not backed up by much fact. Yeah, but 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 the threats the other way are not backed up either. It seems. Meaning. Meaning the U.S. is not you know is not a hard line enough, not strong enough to, uh, or or not you know coming out with statements or policies strong enough to prevent the the further enrichment or the public statements well, about the statements further enrichment. Well, are there, and we're not going back into JCPOA, and we are imposing more and more. Sanctions. These sanctions are working. This is a, a very sophisticated. Then why approach. do they make public statements admitting to the further enrichment? Pardon me. Then why do they make public statements admitting to further? Because they're enrichment? trying to pressure the Europeans and switch the onus to them, uh, and saying, you know, you're responsible if you don't deliver on what you promised. Meaning, bypass systems of the, you know, they're denied access to SWIFT and the money transfers, et cetera. And if you don't come up, and if you don't offer us the. Um, alternatives, then we ha- we are not the ones violating the JCPOA. You are, and therefore they feel that it's legitimized because the enriched uranium, the IEA, has come out already, International Atomic Energy Agency, and saying that they've exceeded the limit. Now, exceeding the limit doesn't mean that they're making a weapon, although we believe, I believe, I should say, that you know they've never really destroyed the infrastructure and they're moving ahead all the time on elements of the of the nuclear program. So not only does the Iran deal put a country, let's say those in the EU, in a precarious position politically, but it puts them in a in a, in a difficult position financially as well. They have to come. That they essentially have to answer Iran when when they complain that they don't have the the business or or the uh, 
or the um, uh, you know the, right. the finances that are necessary for them. Iran's economy is in free fall. The value of the of the currency is about ten percent of what it was. Um, the Iranians keep saying they're going to go now the next step, which is enriching beyond the three point six seven allowed, not just the quantity but to a higher level to go towards. Uh, weapons grade. The, uh, many of the Europeans have warned them now and have come out with public statements, uh, very critical. Um, but as you know, that they've uh, coddled them and they refuse to join the United States in pulling out of the JCPOA. I think that you know some of those who argue against the decision right now will see that uh, the Iranians can't be trusted, were never trusted, uh, couldn't, should never have been trusted uh, with this kind of a deal, let alone given uh, all of the resources they were given, and with the reduction in the exemptions, et cetera, they're, they're, it's estimated they're losing $50 billion a year just from oil exports. What weapons did you say uh, Russia's ready to sell to Iran? Russia said that they would sell them the S-400, which is the anti-aircraft system that Iran, Syria has. It's very advanced, and they, uh, but that Iran hadn't requested it. Um, if this is one of the issues with Turkey. Which has asked for, which is purchasing the S four hundred, but also wants to buy the stealth bombers, and we're saying you got to make a choice; it's one or the other. And the U.S. obviously would prefer if Russia did not embark on those sales, right? Absolutely. If that's the case, if, if, if that's the case, destabilizing for threatens. And there are there are Trump Putin meetings, including one within the last couple of weeks. Does this come up? I'm sure it comes up all the time because it came up in the Turkey business where we're we're still in a conflict situation over it. It's a very tense uh, situation. You know, Russia wants to challenge the United States wherever it can, um, and the the um, and this is only one element of it. The S-400 is a very capable system, uh, and it can limit the ability, if in the time of war or conflict, or even in terms of intelligence gathering of aircraft in the region or other systems, and, and has an early warning because it has a very broad range uh, that it covers. So it is, a, it is a game changer when it is, in fact, sold. They want to sell anything they can because they, they make right. money out of it, and Russia's economy also needs... Uh, as real challenges. There's no more blatant way to challenge the U.S. than taking a position like that with Iran, you know? That is true. And, and you know, if you people should, should read carefully the stories about the new son of Hamas, the second son of Hamas, who has broken with his father, meaning he's this, the son uh, of the leader of Hamas, the founder, uh, and like the Green Prince, who has made speeches all over, and now another son has come out, but he is not, He's saying not under the same conditions, but he is speaking out, and he was involved in Turkey, very involved in Turkey, and, and discusses the transfer of Iranian money via Turkey ah, in, into Gaza. Wow. And uh, I think that this could be um, – uh, we will get very interesting um, insight. Unlike his brother, he says he's not – he didn't come out to work with Israel. Um, he left over the corruption. Um, his brother now speaks on campuses and stuff about and a pro-Israel speaker. The um, uh, but he he tells about the uh, killing of civilians, etc. I think that this will be very interesting to tell us more about Iran's role. How do they live to tell these stories? You would think they'd be uh... well escaped. 
and, and yeah, to get security, and I they're understood. they're worried about their lives. Understood, but there are international efforts to eliminate people like this. I mean, that's right. But you know, Zaman Rushdie was targeted right. and had also right. remember and right. went into hiding for a short while, but is now public, and uh, I'm sure they all take a lot of precautions. Because uh, they betrayed the, are seen as betraying their father. Any other uh, outcome from the Bahrain conference that we should know about, including those Palestinians who attended, who are, who, who again are now are now being targeted? Right, they, they were released. One was arrested. He was released, but he says he fears for his life. I think it's important that Israel's ties with Oman, uh, announced by the head of the Mossad in a speech he gave. Um, uh, is an important uh, step in the fact that, you know, um, Israeli businessmen and others uh, created contacts which are being pursued and, and uh, followed. Uh, the true significance of Bahrain will only be known later, and they, we'll see whether the political components are going to be um, uh, released, but the $50 billion plan um, which provides many opportunities, not just for the Palestinians, but Egypt, Jordan, etc. And the, um, it could certainly change the nature of uh, the lives for many people, uh, the conditions. But the, uh, as, as some of the Arab states said, the Arab leaders, that the Palestinians don't want to give up their misery. They don't want to participate. They don't want to better the lives of the people. Uh, so this delegation of, of Palestinian businessmen who were there, um, we'll see what what kind of public support there is for for what they for their positions and they certainly were courageous in the risk that they took in uh, in going there. Before we wrap up, I've been asked to ask you um, about Jewish involvement in the debate regarding what's happening on the southern border, specifically those who are detained. I mean, you see uh, many members of the Jewish community nationwide getting involved in this discussion and playing a role, do you have any observation to make about the uh, uh, about how good or bad an idea that might be? Look, it's a sensitive issue in the Jewish community because we, we were an immigrant community, um, uh, and it's not nationwide. There are organizations who, uh, who whose agenda this is on. It's not on ours, so I'm really right. not that knowledgeable. We don't deal with domestic issues, but it's uh, it's clearly very sensitive. And um, um, it is right that uh, there were Jews down at the border and Jews were things, but many of them are um, Jews. There's an organization that have a long hostility towards the Trump administration and uh, others that have been just really advocates on these issues for for all of their existence. By the way, there are, um, and I think that those who are, are concerned about the reactions. You know, we just saw this new poll from California, which showed a 21% increase in anti-Semitic incidents. And uh, the New York one that Governor Cuomo mentioned while he was in Israel on a remarkable visit um, that uh, he talked about, by the way, that New York State exports $5 billion to Israel and imports $8 billion in goods, probably the most of any state in the in the union, and um, uh, it is a remarkable statistic. And he had a very successful sh- uh, sh- brief, but he really packed it uh, visit, including to the uh, city of David and other uh, and the tunnels and, and other sites, meeting business people uh, to promote ties between New York and uh, and Israel and economic ties. Um, 
But the other statistic I wanted to cite was that the study that showed that one-fifth of Americans say that it's legitimate to refuse service to a Jew by a small business based on their religious belief. And I think that that is something, it's up 7% from the last time it was measured in 2014. And that, that is a huge increase, even if the number sounds small, but that one in five Americans feel that way and that the um, the latest studies show the overwhelming majority of young people are sensing the increase in anti-Semitism. In Britain, they just finished a study, and it showed that the majority of young people had experienced an anti-Semitic incident. Eighty percent of them did not report it. And I would bet that the number still is true here, that people still do not report it. And the numbers really matter, and getting it on record really matters. And it's it's a laziness or it's a fear. It's, these are not... Uh, legitimate uh, excuses not to at least let the police know, get the record so that the numbers accurately reflect uh, what what is happening um, in in our own country. Uh, it, it's really uh, important. Finally, BB will not address the General Assembly because of the election in Israel. No big deal, right? Well, he hasn't come every year, and it's usually because of uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot. Uh, this year, it works out better, uh, but um, I will have to wait and see. I don't think that they've made a final decision that he won't uh. come, because the the election will be over uh, by the time he would be scheduled to speak, as I recall. Uh. And um, and they, as the last discussion I had with them is that there had not been a final decision one way or another of what they uh, of whether he would come. Uh, right now, you know, Israel Katz is the foreign minister. We don't know what will be then. But he also had a visit. He was in the UAE at an international climate conference and met an official, was received by an official there, uh, all of which is evidence of the continuing breakdown of uh, of the barriers to relationships. It's not, you know, all warm and fuzzy, but it's certainly uh, far different in the business Israeli businessmen who were at the Bahrain conference reflected that as well. Uh, are we uh, weekly updating next week? I'm to share my All right. Show. There you go. So next week, please, God, the 19th, we are with NCSY in Israel. So we're going to skip that week and then get back on schedule after that. I thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and thanks so much for joining us. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.